Last week, uh, Brother Ben had reached out to me and uh, told me that uh, Victoria, who's been talking about being baptized and joining the church, that uh, she wanted to discuss it last Sunday. And if uh, we could do it, be baptized last Sunday. So last Sunday morning before church, we met down in the basement before we met for worship. And Brother Ben and Sister Victoria and Julian and Desmond were there. We went through each of the articles of faith and we talked about them, discussed them. And I thought it's good for us to do that ever so often, even as a church body to be reminded about what uh, Mount Carmel embraced when Mount Carmel was set up. As I mentioned before uh, in the song service, I had the blessing this week of visiting uh, Brother Phil's aunt, uh, Mrs. Jeanette Sims. To my knowledge, she is the only living person that was here when Mount Carmel was started almost 88 years ago. We had a wonderful Visit. It was a real blessing to be able to reminisce about some old days. Uh, and she has fond memories of Mount Carmel and growing up here. But when Mount Carmel was started uh, 88 years ago, this uh, group of 11 articles of faith were embraced at that time. And very likely when uh, it started, it was probably an extension of a church in North Carolina because most of the people that came up here that had migrated up here, and if you read some of the history about Mount Carmel, you'll see that uh, some of the people uh, came to Maryland to be able to get work. They lived in the mountains of North Carolina in rural areas. And as Elder Compton described it, he said, when we lived in North Carolina, he said there was a lot of hard work and no pay. And so... People came up to Maryland and they settled in this area and in order to be able to get uh, good paying jobs. And then uh, I've heard stories about Brother Phil's grandfather that he knew a lot of folks in uh, the South growing up and living in that area. And so when opportunities would arise up here in Maryland after he had moved here, Uh, He would make folks aware of it, help them with their transportation. And for years, back in the 30s and 40s, people would travel up here so that they could get, uh, they could uh, maybe purchase a farm, get a job at a factory and places like that. And so when these people came up here that uh, very, most of them, Brother Irwin knew, they wanted a place to worship. And as they began to settle around here in in Bel Air in this area, uh, they desired that there would be a primitive Baptist church. Many of them were primitive Baptist in North Carolina, uh, growing up in the uh, churches that are scattered around in in that part of uh, in that part of the state. It was in the mountain region, the Sparta region, West Jefferson and places like that. A lot of the folks that came up uh, bought some of these farms that were around. And uh, some of the stories that I've heard about it is that, and the folks from North Carolina were hard workers. They may not have had uh, some of the higher education, but one of the things that they did have is they had a really good, strong work ethic. And so when they came to Maryland, folks would, uh, would 
I've heard the story, they would sell them a farm on time. They would finance the farm for them. Uh, and uh, they would think that uh, sometimes that these folks from the South might not be able to work and pay for the farm and they might get it back. But the story that I've heard was that uh, in every single case, there's not one person that uh, they were aware of that lost their farm due to uh, not having adequate and hard work. And some of those folks, the farms became very valuable and, and they passed them on down to their family. But they wanted to be able to worship. And so there was a, uh, I think it's a, it's a, uh, uh, um, I can't think of the name of it. Why not YMCA? But um, I've heard Sister Jackson tell that there was a, a building just down the road here on Route 22, and it was like a lodge. Uh, one of the lodge. Uh, I can't think of the name of the lodge. What? King's. Oh, the Odd Fellows. Okay, that's a strange place to meet for a church, but uh, but. Um, um, that's where they met for a, a period of time. And they would meet and have church once a month. And uh, different preachers would come up and, and uh, they'd hold church once a month. And, and folks wanted to continue meeting and they wanted to meet more often than that. And so there was of the original body that started Mount Carmel. I believe there were eight that were original charter members. And so when a church is constituted, uh, several of you here were involved in the constitution of the Southampton Church, and it was what they call an arm or an extension of Mount Carmel. And so when Southampton, Pennsylvania was started, the folks that started it were members either here at Mount Carmel or at Wilmington uh, in this area. And so when the church was constituted, when we had a service and the church actually was formed, then the folks... Uh, transferred their membership from Mount Carmel and from Wilmington to start the Southampton Church. So some of these members were very likely members in North Carolina. And the pastor, the first pastor that started the church here was Elder um, uh, uh, Pittman. And he's the one that wrote the song, The Lord Has Been So Good to Me. Elder Pittman was an able minister in the turn of the century from the 19. 19- Hundreds up until 1940. Uh, he would be likened unto Sonny Piles uh, as far as his travels. He'd be likened unto Elder Bradley uh, in, in all the, the places that he preached and touched. And so he was well known in the, uh, in the turn of the century and up through 1940. And so he came up here from North Carolina at the request of some of these folks that had moved here and desired to worship. And after they had met for a period of time in this uh, Odd Fellows Lodge, they decided to constitute a church here at, uh, uh, at this location. Brother Irwin, Brother Phil's um, uh, brother, uh, uh, Irwin, secured the location here. And uh, they purchased the property. And then he secured a lot of the contractors to help build Mount Carmel. Interestingly, if you see a picture of Mount Carmel, I, I showed it this last week to Sister Annabelle, the original picture of the original building, the building only went to where that, those columns are right there. And the front door was, this was the front door and the pulpit was over here. And on the exterior of the building, it was, it looked like cinder block. And that was how it was 
designed and didn't have the stucco on the outside. There's been a few uh, upgrades in the last 80, 88 years. The restrooms were outside around the back, uh, attached to the, uh, it wasn't quite an outhouse, but it was attached to the back of the building, and that was the, the restroom facility. Later on, in maybe the 40s or 50s, uh, they decided that they wanted a basement to be able to have fellowship and to have meals. And so uh, uh, Sister, uh, Sister Greenfield's uh, father-in-law, um, uh, uh, Brother Krauss, uh, who was a member here at Mount Carmel, he and Jim Dixon and others actually hand dug the basement out. I mean, they dug it. And they hauled it out in shovels, and that's how the basement was built after the church was already here. And so they, they dug the basement out. That'd be, I mean, not just the two of them. There were others that helped as well, but they, they dug the basement, created a fellowship hall, and we had a, uh, a place to be able to have dinner. Before that, when they would have annual meetings or when they would have a meal, they would actually meet outside and they truly had dinner on the grounds, but you've heard that term. And they would take these long boards, these, these big long boards and put them up on frames or, uh, and people would stand there and eat their meals. And so they would put the boards up and they would eat outside. And that was their, their method of being able to fellowship. Um, so very likely these articles of faith were passed down from one of the churches in North Carolina that uh, Elder Pittman was affiliated with or where their membership actually was. These articles of faith are very similar to the ones that Southampton now has because Southampton was an extension or an arm of Mount Carmel. And so as you travel around the country, uh, Brother Danny's visited places down south, Sister Annabelle and others have, as you travel around the country, a lot of times the church will have the articles of faith uh, somewhere hanging in the foyer or in the auditorium or something like that. And even if you go back within 100 years or 200 years, although they may vary by one or two articles, there may be 13 or there may be 10, the content of the articles of faith of most of the churches are almost identical. They address the very uh, same points of Christ of salvation, of election, of total depravity. I have seen some articles uh, in upstate New York where in some of the churches they had an article in there that it was uh, required that parents raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And that was a little bit different than what I've seen. But Generally speaking, when I go to different churches, I enjoy looking at their articles of faith. And, and sometimes even maybe two of them are sandwiched together. And so I've seen some that had as few as eight, uh, some that had maybe 15. But it's basically the same content uh, no matter where you go. And probably the reason that it is that way is that churches don't just spring up. They don't just start on their own. They have a starting place. And it's usually or generally 
uh, a membership that comes from somewhere else, a body of believers that have already been baptized, that already embrace the articles of faith. And so when a church is started, it's not just springing up out of nowhere. It is passed down from one church to another. The oldest Primitive Baptist here in America is the Welsh Track Primitive Baptist Church, which is just north of us here, about 30 miles in Newark, Delaware. And that church came over from Wales as a constituted body. They were constituted in Wales as a church, and then they came over to America. And so that was the the founding church among the old school or primitive Baptists actually came as a constituted church here to America. And then out of that church, other churches began to, uh, to grow and expand. The London Tract Church, the Southampton Church, the Pennypack Church, uh, Hopewell Church came out of some of those uh, bodies of believers. And so in the early 1700s, uh, Welsh Track started in 1698, but in the early 1700s, there was a number of churches that started out of the Welsh Track Church in Newark, Delaware. One of the churches that started in the early 1700s is the Old Harford or Old Brick Church. You can uh, Google it. You can research it online. A lot of great history about the Old Brick Church. But out of the Old Brick Church, after it started in the early 1700s, out of that church, there were like six or seven Primitive Baptist churches that started just in the, the mid to late 1700s. There was one in Baltimore. There was one west of Baltimore, uh, Reisterstown area. Uh, there were uh, Tawny Town near Westminster. There was uh, a number of churches that started out of the old brick church. And it was uh, very instrumental in churches starting from that. Well, Southampton started from Mount Carmel and from Wilmington, and it was an extension or an arm. So their articles are very much like ours. I'd like to go through some of the articles, share some scriptures with you that I believe support the articles of faith. The articles that we embrace uh, as a church body of what Mount Carmel represents, uh, although it is not a requirement in the scriptures in order to be baptized uh, in, in scriptural baptism, baptism by immersion or membership into the church. Although this is not a requirement, the main requirement is that you believe in Jesus Christ and that you love the Lord and you believe that the Lord loves you and you have a hope in heaven, but that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. I personally... Uh, Take the opportunity most of the time when someone expresses the desire to unite with the church, either through baptism or through moving their membership to Mount Carmel. I take the opportunity to to go through the articles of faith and discuss them and try to answer any questions that, that anyone has or uh, or dig into them a little bit deeper. I love, love, love the articles of faith that Represent that Mount Carmel embraced. And I believe that it is a really good guide for us to live by. And the church has stood by that for 88 plus years. When I was ordained into the ministry uh, about 32 or 3 years ago, 
the church that I was ordained in was the Lubbock Primitive Baptist Church. And when there is an ordination service, uh, there is a part of the ordination service is a presbytery that's formed. And that is a body of ministers and deacons that sort of uh, almost set in discernment or judgment to see if the candidate is sound in what he believes and embraces. And if he believes what the church believes the scriptures to teach, what the what the church embraces. And so the articles of faith that I uh, embraced and agreed to when I was ordained into the ministry 32, 33 years ago is almost identical. The very principal uh, points are almost identical to the ones that we embrace today. I went back to my home church this year. It'd been a long time since I'd been to my home church. There's only two people still living from the Lubbock church that was in my ordination service. Two people in the presbytery that was in the ordination service. The presbytery was, uh, if I remember correctly, it consisted of about 45 individuals. Maybe 20 of them were ministers and 25 of them were deacons. And they all assembled there together. And so as you go through the ordination service, it's a fairly lengthy process, a lengthy service. Part of the service, there's several different parts of the service, but one of the parts is that you are questioned. And anybody there that's in the presbytery can question you. Generally, the moderator or the pastor will go through the articles of faith and he will question the candidate on each individual article. More, the, the, it's, it's, uh, when you're ordained as a deacon, most of those answers are, do you agree with these articles? When you're ordained to the ministry, they want you to be able to expound on each one of the articles. So when I was ordained as a deacon, two years before being ordained into the ministry, we went through the articles of faith one by one, and they would ask me, do you Embrace this. Is this what you hold to? When Brother Mike Rogers and I were ordained into the ministry, they would read an article and then they would ask us individually to expound on this article. Why do you believe this particular article and why is it important to you? And so when I went back to my home church this year in uh, in July and preached a, a weekend meeting, it was a real special time for me. I told them. Let them know that the uh, articles that I believed back then when I was ordained, that I still held to them today. And I believe that if we decide that this is not what we believe as ministers, that I should either conform and embrace it and be able to support it with the scriptures, or I should lay down my qualifications as a minister. I don't believe that I should attempt to change what the church has stood for for 88 years. That's not what I believe that I was called here to do. I believe that what I'm called to do is to reinforce what's been taught to me and passed down to me. I miss very much. This is a, a unique place in the ministry for me. It's, it's an uncharted water that I've not been to before. 
And there's part of it that I don't like. And this is the part of it that I don't like. I enjoyed the blessing of having the fellowship, the wisdom, and the encouragement of the older ministers. I enjoyed having Brother Compton, Elder Fletcher, Elder Bartabal, those ministers that were faithful ministers of the gospel that we could go to and talk to and glean from and to seek their counsel and to see their stability that they had, their steadfastness that they had. And it saddens me, and it's a place that I don't like to be to think that they're all gone. I'm thankful that we still have Elder Bradley. We still have Elder Lawrence. Uh, that there's ministers that I can consult with that have been in the ministry a little bit longer than I have. But I tell you, you wake up one day and it seems like they're all gone and you're kind of where they were. And I, I thought to myself, I wonder if they felt the same way I did when when they reached this point. Well, it is what it is. Can't turn the clock back, but do the best we can where we are. Let's look at some of the articles of faith, and I pray it'll be a blessing to you. The articles of faith of Mount Carmel Primitive Baptist Church. To my knowledge, these are the same articles that we had when the church was constituted, or at least very, very similar. It, when I first started pastoring here, it came up, a topic of discussion came up among some that we might change a few of the articles. And um, I, I'm, I'm glad that didn't happen. I'm very satisfied with the articles that we have today. I think it describes what we it describes what we understand the scriptures as a whole to teach. Now, there's some churches, I've been told, that have some of the similar articles that we have. They, they have it maybe in their documents, but they don't still hold to it. I can testify that I believe that we affirm and hold to the same articles that Mount Carmel was started with. Let's look at the first one. This was actually the first question that was presented to me when I was ordained into the ministry. Uh, we believe that there is but one true and living God. And that in the Godhead, there are three persons. God, the Father, the Word or Son, and the Holy Ghost, which three are one. Now, can you define that? It's not easy to realize that the Godhead is made up of three individual parts, but yet all of them are the Godhead. So let's go over to 1 John chapter 5, and this helps us a little bit right here. We'll get down to verse 7 and 8, and it will help sort of piece it together for us right here. 1 John chapter 5 says this, and uh, I've, I've printed, I, I, I retyped and printed verses that support the articles of faith. In our articles, the verses are not, uh, we don't have the supporting verses 
in our directory or in uh, uh, even online, but uh, I'll make copies of this. And if you want to take these and, and study them yourself, you're welcome to do that if, if you'd like to do it. So the first one is we believe that in the Trinity, we believe in God, the father, God, the son and God, the Holy Ghost. And those three are made up as one. Here's the supporting verse. First, John, chapter five. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone that loveth him, that begat, loveth him also that is begotten of him. So he basically says that if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you believe in God, it's because you're born of God. You don't just wake up one day and decide that you're going to believe in God. You don't believe in God of your own ability or your, your own fruition. But you believe in God because you are born of God and because he loved you. For this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And he says and his commandments are not grievous. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? So if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, it clearly teaches that it's because we're born of God. And so the only way that we can embrace this concept of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost is because we're born of God. And it's through the faith that God gives us that we can even comprehend and piece it together. It doesn't make any sense aside from faith. The natural man is not going to appreciate it. The natural man is not going to understand it. The natural man will explain it away. But the spiritual man that's been quickened and given spiritual life and been born of God can say, you know, I believe I can understand that. I believe it makes sense. And here's where he says it. For there are three that bear record in heaven. Now, do we believe it? Do we embrace it? If the scriptures teach it and we embrace it, it's because we're born of God. He says, there are three that bear record in heaven. And here it is. He says, the father. He says, bear record in heaven, the father, the word and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. How is it that we embrace that? We embrace it through the eye of faith that God gives us as the result of being born of God. He says there's three that bear record in heaven, God, the father, the word or the son and the Holy Ghost. And he says these three. So there's three that bear witness and record in heaven. And he says these three actually are one. Then he says in verse eight, and there are three that bear witness in earth, the spirit and the water and the blood. And these three, it says, agree in one. So we embrace the concept of God. I, I've, I've heard and, and, and I've known folks that have said that they believe in God and they uh, believe that Jesus Christ was a good man. I've, I've, I've had communication with folks that tell me that 
Jesus Christ was a good man and he taught some good lessons and and he has some good examples that uh, that are important for us to follow. But the scripture says that the three of them bear record in heaven. And if we are born of the spirit of God and God has blessed us with faith, then we can embrace the concept that he's talking about right here. That, yes, there is God, the father who is dwelling in heaven. There's God, the son, Jesus Christ, and there's the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus Christ came into this earth and in the form of man and represented God himself as he was here on this earth. The Holy Spirit in John chapter 14, we're told, is the comforter that God gives us that we need here in time until he calls us on home to glory. And so Jesus Christ is for your benefit and the Holy Spirit is for your benefit. And you benefit from those three parts of God that's dwelling in heaven. You are the beneficiary of that right now. Jesus Christ was your sacrifice. Jesus Christ was the lamb that was slain on your behalf. And the Holy Spirit is what helps you and comforts you and sustains you and encourages you in the time that you have here on this earth. Jesus Christ said, I'm uh, Jesus Christ told his disciples in John chapter 14. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. But he says, I'm not leaving you without a comforter. And that comforter is the Holy Spirit. And he says that he dwells with you in uh, John chapter 14. He says the Holy Spirit dwells with you. And I love this part. He says the Holy Spirit dwells with you and he dwells in you. So God is the one that puts the Holy Spirit in you and you embrace it because you're born of the spirit of God and because of the faith that God gives you as a child of God. That's the first one that we embrace. The second one, uh, if you want to turn to second Timothy chapter three, this one, uh, this is second uh, Timothy chapter three. Here's the second one that we Embrace. We believe, we believe that the Old and New Testament scriptures were given by the inspiration of God, and we accept them as being the only complete and unerring rule of faith and practice. We believe that the Old and New Testament scriptures were given by the inspiration of God, and we accept them as being the only complete and unerring rule of faith and practice. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17, we'll read. Paul, instructing Timothy right here, who was taught from a mental standpoint about the scriptures through his mother and grandmother. Paul is telling Timothy, and then he tells him to pass this on down. He says, continue thou, he says, Timothy, continue in the things that you've learned. And that you've been assured of knowing of whom thou hast learned them. His mother, his grandmother taught him these things. As far as the, 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 the word of scripture, that's the mode and how it came to him. And he refers back to uh, when he was a child. And he says, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Doesn't say that the scriptures give you salvation, but they make you wise unto salvation, wise unto the salvation that you have. 
Now, we believe the scripture, the uh, article says that the scriptures were given by the inspiration of God. What does that simply mean? It means that these verses right here in this book that we believe is our rule of faith and practice, that this is the inspired. What inspired simply means is God breathed. That God breathed into these men that penned these verses and that they penned them exactly the way that God would have them to do it. And so when it says inspired, it means God breathed. Now, here's what he tells us about the verses. He says, you've known these verses from a child. They're able to make the wise unto salvation through the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So he reminds us again that it's necessary to have the element of faith in order to even understand and embrace the scriptures. Even understand that I've I've had folks that I've talked to that that would say, I believe that uh, there's some good lessons in the Bible. I believe there's some good principles to live by. But I don't really embrace that all the things happen that they say happens in the scripture. I believe there's some really good lessons. But it's one thing to, to look at it as a history book or as a lesson book to live by or as a guide to learn by. And it's completely different to say, I believe that this is the word of God and that it came inspired by God. And that is my rule of faith and practice. There's a whole lot of uh, there's a whole lot of really good books that are out there that you can benefit from, that you can learn from, that you can glean from. But there's not any book that is like the word of God. And when Brother Sonny Piles would would tell us oftentimes, he said, there's great commentaries out. I enjoy reading commentaries that other men who have a lot of wisdom and insight share their thoughts on on the scriptures. The very best one for me, you may have one that that you like. You might like Matthew Henry. You may like some of the others. Uh, 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 Thompson, there's others that you might enjoy. The one that I enjoy the most that that aligns more with my understanding of the scriptures is John Gill. He was a, a sovereign grace preacher. And I like John Gill comments, has a comment about every verse in the Bible. And you can go through and read his comments. And a lot of times there will be a a lesson or a topic that he's addressing. And he'll say, well, this is what some people say it believes. Here's what other people say it believes as far as their understanding of the scripture. And he says, and here's what I think it means. And here's why I think it means this way. Well, John Gill was a very able minister, man of God, had a lot of insight, was probably like Sonny Piles, had a photographic memory. And he had great insight and and great comments and great understanding and great wisdom. But as great as John Gill is, that's not the authority for us. Elder Sonny Powell said the best commentary on the Bible is actually the Bible itself. You can go over to the Old Testament and you can get supporting text in the Old Testament. Brother Danny did that last week, supported the lesson that he brought forth, both with the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And so the very best support 
For the Bible itself is the Bible itself. And you can just find those supporting texts to support any topic that you that is taught in the scripture. You can find it in multiple places in God's word. Now, there's a variety of ways to preach. I hope someday I can figure out the best way to do it. I hope that, that, I'll, that I'll be able to figure it out. Some ministers like to, uh, like to take uh, a topic and, and, and preach on a, on a topic or on a verse. For example, depravity or long-suffering or faith or, as Brother Ben spoke, on grace. And he spoke on faith. And, and that, is a, that is a topical sermon where you can take a topic or you can take a verse and you can expand on that. And you can go over to the Old Testament and you can, you can see the, the supporting text in the Old. And then you can go to the New Testament and find the supporting text there. Other ministers, like oftentimes Elder Bradley, um, uh, like uh, when Brother Ben spoke the first time on the resurrection out of 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 15, he started in the 15th chapter and he just went right down the chapter. That's expository preaching. But whether you're, whether you're preaching from a topical standpoint, whether you're taking a verse and expounding on it, or whether you're going down a chapter and preaching from an expository standpoint, all of those methods of preaching can be supported both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament through verses that support what you're uh, teaching and speaking on. So the best commentary on the scriptures are the scriptures themselves. It doesn't hurt to, doesn't hurt to pursue other men's writings, but realize that that's just what it is, other men's writings. And it doesn't compare. It's not even a close second to God's word. If you're only going to read one book, this is what you need to read. If you want to read multiple books, make sure you go back to this book. The bottom line and the ruling authority is the word of God. That's in our articles of faith that we believe that this is the inspired word of God. Now, I'll finish this verse right here. These two verses. It's really, really good. He says, Timothy, you've known this from a child. And he says, all scripture is given by the inspiration of God. So our forefathers didn't just make this up. They got it from this verse right here. Our second article of faith says all scripture is given by the inspiration of God. And he says, and here's the benefit of it. It's not going to benefit somebody that's not a child of God. First of all, they're not going to embrace it. They're not going to apply it. They're not going to use it. It'll have no benefit to them. In fact, if they're not a child of God, they'll probably argue it or they'll explain it away. And but for the child of God, here's the benefit. He says all scripture is given by the inspiration of God. And he says it's beneficial. He says it's profitable. Profitable means that it's going to help you. It's going to make a difference. He says all scripture is given by the inspiration of God. It is beneficial. It is profitable for doctrine. The reason that we believe the principal points of the doctrine that are in our articles of faith is because the scripture itself teaches us about the doctrine. He says it's profitable for doctrine. It's profitable for reproof. It's profitable for correction. 
It's beneficial for instruction in righteousness. And he said that the bottom line, the end result for the child of God is this. That if we take the scriptures and we apply them in our life, here's the benefit right here. That the man of God, so it's not to somebody that's not a child of God. This is written to a specific people. And he says that the man of God, that's who it's written to. That the man of God may be perfect. It doesn't mean sinless. But what it means is that you have a perfect guide to go by. And what it means is that when we sin, we're going to be convicted by God's word. How many times have you read God's word and you might have thought, I didn't know that was in there. And you realize that it convicted you about something in your own life as you read it. And maybe you weren't even aware that that was in there. Some folks, uh, some, I, I've known folks uh, that, that assumed they knew what was in the Bible. Uh, they had their own concept about what was in the Bible. And you could tell from talking to them that their conversation didn't support what uh, the Bible said. Because the Bible was completely contrary to some of their positions and thoughts. The best way to know how that the Bible is going to help you is to just simply read the Bible. A, a, a great place to start. We mentioned this before, but a great place to start in reading the Bible is to go over to the Old Testament. Now, I'm not going to go all the way back to the first part of the Old Testament, but go over to the Old Testament of, of the book of Proverbs. Proverbs has 31 chapters in it. There's uh, it's. It's really good to take one proverb per day of the month and read it and meditate upon it. And and you might say, well, I don't I don't really understand the Bible. Well, you can't hardly misunderstand Proverbs. It, it just it, it just has little short tidbits of instruction that will help you. When it just says simply trust in the Lord. I mean, how can you confuse that? Uh, he, he, he gives us all of these uh, all of these bits of instruction that will uh, that will help us in our everyday life. So the book of Proverbs is a really good place to start. I remember Brother Polk uh, when uh, he joined Mount Carmel when he was like seventy three years old, seventy four, and sister he and sister Polk and and he told me he said uh, he said, Brother Stephen, I started reading the Bible the first time in my whole life. And he said, I started in Matthew and I read it all the way through in the New Testament. He said, I loved reading the New Testament and just enjoyed it so much. He said, then I went to the Old Testament and he said, I started with Genesis and Exodus. And as, as I began to read those books, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, Numbers, that have all the genealogy and all the history about families and names that are really hard to pronounce. And he said, when I got into Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, he says, I decided when you've read one of those books, you've read them all. <laughs> he said, best way to understand how the scriptures are going to help you is to read them. And take a pencil and mark it. And when it ministers to you or it touches you and blesses you, 
Mark it. Write on the side something that means something to you about it. And then when you get old, pass it on down to your children and your grandchildren. And that will be one of the most valuable keepsakes that they'll ever have. I keep my grandmother's Bible. It's a pretty thick Bible. I keep my grandmother's Bible in Rio de Janeiro, New Mexico. And when I go out there and have a service, I preach from her Bible. And her Bible is all marked up. She's got things highlighted, underlined, penciled, verses written on the side. And as I'm reading verses that mean something to me, I can see what it meant to her. And I can see some of her thoughts. And it just it's just so exciting to be able to think about what it meant to my grandmother. And now it means that to me. So take the word of God. This is this is the most valuable possession that you'll have to help you in your life right now. It helps us in every aspect of life. Heard someone say one time, it doesn't tell us how to change a flat tire, but it does tell us what kind of attitude to have while we're doing it. So it will address the concepts of our life and it will help us in every aspect if we'll just take it and apply it. I'm just going to touch on this next one here. I, I thought we'd get through at least half of them and we gave a little history and got started a little bit late. But I want to read the, this last one right here. This is so good. We believe that God has always pursued his own infinitely wise plan in all of his works and ways and that he will ever continue to do so. And that all things brought to pass are brought to pass by him are but the result of his holy, wise and determinate counsel from eternity. So I'll touch on a few verses right here that that I believe uh, support this right here. Psalm 116, Psalm 116, verse three. But our God is in the heavens and he hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Just simply means that the God that we worship and believe in, that he does his pleasure when he wants to, where he wants to, how he wants to, that he does it as he is pleased. He doesn't ask our permission. He doesn't need our help. He doesn't need our assistance. That he's totally, completely in control and he works his will as he pleases. Psalm 135, it also highlights it again here. Praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the name of the Lord. Praise him, O ye servants of the Lord, ye that stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praises unto his name, for it is pleasant. And then he begins to tell us. For the Lord hath chosen Jacob unto himself. And it says in Israel, he hath chosen Israel for his particular treasure. God chose a people. If you go over into Ephesians chapter one, we'll see that he chose that people from before the foundation of the world. And he tells us right here that he chose a people for his particular treasure, uh, peculiar treasure. I'm sorry. Um, he says, for I know uh, the psalmist says, for I know that the Lord is great and that our God is above all God's. Whatsoever the Lord pleaseth, 
that he did in heavens and in the earth and in the sea and in the deep places. He just simply says that God is ruling and reigning and he does his pleasure and he does it how he wants to, where he wants to, and even breaks it down. He says he does his pleasure in heaven. He does his pleasure in earth. He does his pleasure in the sea. He does his pleasure in the deep places. He even causeth the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He maketh the lightnings for the rain, and he bringeth the winds out of his treasuries. It just sounds to me like that he's creating the picture right here that God's in charge and that God's in control. Even the weather itself. Some people say, well, things just happen. Well, they do, but I believe God's causing them to happen behind the scenes. I believe that they'll say, well, things just come together and, and, and they happen from a natural standpoint. Well, I don't believe for one minute that God created this earth and he just wound it up and set it in motion to, uh, to fend for itself a certain number of days. The earth is in the hands of the Lord. The heavens are in the hands of the Lord and all of the fullness is in the hands of the Lord and he's holding it in his hands. Some folks, some folks create the concept that if you, if you spray one too many aerosol cans, that, that it's going to cause the world to come to an end uh, so soon. Or if you run uh, the lawnmower uh, one too many times, it's going to, it's going to affect the atmosphere and the world's going to just, it's, it's going to cause total chaos. I can assure you that this earth is going to last exactly as long as the Lord would have it to last. Believe that he will. I could say some more about it, but it's probably not beneficial. Um, I don't really sort my trash because I know that someday it's all going to be burned up in one pile. Maybe that's an excuse for if you do, that's fine. But uh, I mean, I go to some of these places, even in the homes, there's all these different bins. If you come to my house, there's one bin, one trash can, one bag. That's I'm not opposed if you do that. But uh, but I tell you, at the end, at the end, it's all going to be burned up. It is. And it's all there's not going to be any of it that lasts or stays. Everything is going to be totally destroyed on this earth. And I have to tell you, I'm glad it is. And you know what? When it happens, we're not going to be here. We're not. All right. Here's another real good verse right here. This is so good. Daniel chapter four, Daniel chapter four, verse thirty five. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing and he doeth according to his will he, he, he begins to put it in perspective right here he says all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say unto him what doest thou he says God's in charge he said, all the inhabitants of the earth, you, you, you put them all together. And he says, it's, it's, it's added up together and reputed as nothing. But he says, he doeth according to his will. 
He is the sovereign God. He is the one that's in control. He says he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? We just simply believe by our third article of faith that God is in control, that God is sovereign, and there's none that can stay his hand. And he works his will as he chooses wherever and whenever he chooses. We believe that God has always pursued his own infinitely wise plan in all of his works and ways and that he will ever continue to do so. Hence, all things brought to pass by him are but the result of his holy, wise and determinate counsel from all eternity. Let me put a disclaimer in there. That does not mean at all that we believe that God is the author of sin. Uh, We don't need any help in doing the sinning. As uh, Brother Asa said, uh, God gets all the credit for the good we do and we get all the credit for the bad that we do. We don't need any help in we will choose the wrong way, go the wrong way, make the wrong decisions all the time if left to ourselves. But if we do anything that's good, it's because of what God is doing in and through us right here. Now, just because God allows some things to happen, it doesn't mean that God causes it to happen. God can remove that hedge from each one of us and allow Satan to uh, to touch us and to, to hinder us along the way. But God is ultimately in charge and God is over Satan and God will not allow Satan to touch us to the point to destroy us because we're in the hands of almighty God. He may take us on home to glory. He may deliver us that way. But God's ultimately in charge. And so God, there's not anything that's out of God's control. God is in charge and he's in control. Aren't you glad he is? Aren't you glad there's not somebody else that's in control? There's a lot of folks think they are. But someday they're going to realize that they're not in control. That God's in control. Well, those are the first three articles. There's uh, six, seven, uh, eight more to go that uh, we won't address those today, but we'll try to address them in the next few times. Brother Ben and Sister Victoria and I went through these in about 30 minutes down in the basement, and, and we didn't comment to this extent, but they're great, great articles that are so precious. And I, I, I get to thinking about what it must have been like when Mount Carmel was started with that little bitty group of people. And yet God has blessed it to last for 88 years, almost 89 years, and continue to be a witness and a light here in Mount Carmel. I'm thankful for the vision that those men and women had and their faithfulness and their desire to establish a church right here in Bel Air, Maryland. And I pray that God will bless it to last a long time, that he'll bless it to grow, um, add to the church, and, and just pray that God will continue to be with us and bless us.